So please remain standing for the reading of God's word this morning from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 18. Galatians 3, 15 to 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. That's God's word for his people today. You may be seated, and let's pray now once again and ask for God's help. So speak to us today, Lord, we pray, that you would feed us by your word and give us life by it, that you would exalt Christ among us so that we might behold his glory and be transformed into that same image we behold from one degree of glory to the next. Make us more like Jesus and teach us this day, we pray, so that we may give you glory in all we say and do. Amen. Uh, If you've worshipped with us for any amount of time, or if this is your first Sunday, you will no doubt notice that the sermons here will have a distinct flavor, namely that we aim to feast on God's word. And the fancy word for that is expositional meaning the structure of the verses, the text that we're looking at, provides the structure for the sermon. The flavor in the text will be the flavor of the sermon. And I'm, or any preacher, is only faithful uh, if the emphasis of his spoken words reflect the emphasis of God's written word. And even when we look at topics, then, the sermons will be focused on unearthing the point and the emphasis of what God has said, rather than emphasizing what I think or anyone else thinks. Our thinking should be shaped by God's word, so then will our preaching. And so if I'm the lead pastor, we'll probably never have a sermon series entitled something like Seven Ways to Have a Successful Marriage. Or four ways, four ingredients for a happy life. And I'm usually not so blunt when talking about the vision of the pulpit here at Five Points because when you go home and pass a church, I don't want you thinking if you see something on their you know, front sign that says something exactly like that, to look down at you or look down at them. I, I usually am not so blunt because... The more reformed we truly are, the less pharisaical we'll be, the less we'll take pride in ourselves and not look down our noses because, well, we went to a church that's not like that. But I do think it's appropriate this morning to make more of a distinction as to normal for why we value expository preaching. One of the reasons is because These verses don't lend themselves to easy application points or to-dos. There's really not four ingredients here to a happy life in that sense. What these verses are going to do are point us to who God is and what he's done. Now that doesn't mean there's no application. There is application in expository preaching. It's just that the application won't be, do these three things and you're going to have a wonderful week. You, have you ever had a week where you've 
I mean, I get that we're all sinner and every righteous deed is tainted with our sin. We're, we're sinful, right? We're never perfectly righteous. But have you ever had a week where you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it, and this week went terribly? Have you ever felt like Job? He's a very righteous man, and, and, and everything went sideways. So it's not just that there's no application. It's, it's how it comes about. It's not do these three things and you're going to have a wonderful week. It's more, here are three ways God is wonderfully amazing. And the more you're enraptured with a vision of who God is and what he does, the more equipped you'll be to walk with God through whatever he providentially has in store for you this week. And which is why we're going through Galatians right now. The world and the church today need a vision of God. That's what we need most. That vision of God will impact your marriage. It will impact your life. It will. Not as, here, do these things, and then God will do this, but more, here is who God is. Now go. And Galatians is tenaciously clear about ultimate realities that the world and the church need today, namely God and his gospel. Paul is shocked when he starts writing this letter because the Galatians are quickly deserting the true gospel he proclaimed to them for a gospel that's no gospel at all. It's a false gospel of justification by works of the law and not by faith alone in Jesus alone. So it shouldn't shock us that there's not a whole lot of, no, 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 don't do these things, do a lot of these things. He's actually saying it's not about doing. In fact, doing is going to lead to curse. It's, it's, it's faith alone in Jesus alone that he's been arguing for. In the past few Sundays, we've seen justification, that God's legal declaration that a person is not guilty of their sins, counting them righteous instead in his holy sight. Justification is by faith, not by doing, but by faith, and it's by faith alone. And it's always been by faith alone in the Old Testament and the New. So in chapter 3, Paul shows Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15 and shows the promise came to him in Genesis 12 that the nations would be blessed through Abraham, which means the blessing of justification will come to the nations by faith alone. That it must be by faith alone. Because, especially in Deuteronomy, it's impossible to get justified, to find justification, to be justified by works of the law. Because the law is an unclimbable mountain for sinners which means it can only bring curse, death. But praise God, Jesus climbed the mountain and he redeemed those under the curse of the law for not keeping the law by becoming the curse for them. Jesus climbed the mountain. He should have received life. He earned it. He had it. But instead of taking that, he gave us that life his merit, his righteousness, and took upon himself our curse. And in becoming a curse for sinners, Jesus redeemed us from sin's curse by his very own blood. And that's all by faith, that that righteousness we don't have becomes ours. It's imputed to us, and Jesus takes our curse upon himself. Now, this is how God has always justified sinners, by faith, not by doing. From the patriarchs to the prophets, so then Paul says, and he, even Habakkuk said it in chapter 2, that God saves people by faith. 
God's people live by faith, not by doing, not by self-righteousness. Now that's the summary of Paul's first argument in chapters 3, verses 1 to 14, that justification and all the blessings we receive along with it come not by works of the law, but by faith alone in Jesus alone, right? So then he says, now, I'm going to give you a human example. So if you're just jumping in with us, try to give you a quick overview of the first two chapters. And now here he goes in verse 15. He gives a second reason why justification can't come from the law and then explains it in the other verses. He says it can't come from law, but rather by faith, because the Mosaic Covenant came 430 years after God's promise came to Abraham and God counted him righteous by his faith in that promise, not by his performance. It's promise, not performance. And the central issue, as we've seen in Galatians, is how does God save sinners? That's really the most important question in the world because we've all sinned. So I know we got lots going on in our heads, lots going on in our world, lots going on in our lives, but this is the central question. If we're all sinners, how does God save sinners? In these verses, Paul continues to show us that God saves sinners not through performance, but because God keeps every promise. God keeps every promise. And we see that in three ways. The permanence of the promise, the person of the promise, and the priority or precedence of the promise. The permanence of promise, the person of promise, and the precedence of promise. So first, the permanence of promise. Look at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. And the Greek word for brothers there means brothers or siblings, and the context determines the meaning. Sometimes it means brothers, sometimes it means family language, siblings. And Paul writes to Galatian believers, the church in Galatia, which included men and women. And so the context here uh, shows that Paul is addressing both men and women because the gospel is at stake for both men and women. They're, they are quickly deserting, not just men, but men and women, quickly deserting the true gospel of faith for one of works. But what needs our attention more than the translation is its usage. Its usage. You remember how Paul started off chapter 3? In fact, do you remember how Paul started off chapter 1? Paul usually says, hey, it's me, Paul. I'm writing with here, from here, with these guys, grace and peace. And then he goes into this usually prayer about how God, he's so thankful for them and how much God loves them. And, you know, Bob, Paul doesn't, he skips all the niceties. He just goes right in. He's like, what are you people doing? And then in chapter 3, he's so, what are you people doing for two chapters? He's about to explode. And he says, you idiots. Why are you so foolish? You're under a spell. You're bewitched. Wake up. But now, he uses family language. <laughs> it's like, you know, maybe he's softening up a bit. I think it's different than that. Sometimes you need both approaches. There, there, you need to be truth and love. Truth and love. I don't think he's being unloving. He's being very loving and calling them back from the cliff. You need both approaches. But now that he's got their attention, he's dropped the stick, right? You need to explode sometimes not in anger but in truthful love and, and call people back from the cliff they're about to walk off Amen. but when they stop you might need to drop your stick or you might smack them off the cliff yourself you need both approaches and here Paul stops and rather than driving them off the cliff 
calls back to them lovingly. And isn't that so reassuring that Paul here doesn't exclude them from God's family yet? It should be very assuring. Some of you have loved ones that are far from God. Some of you have been far from God. (laughs) Some of you have people who are walking out of step with the truth of the gospel right now, and you're, you're very concerned, you're weighted down, you're burdened for them. And so may God, or Paul's usage of brothers and sisters give you great comfort here. The Galatians were on the brink of accepting a curse, and yet Paul calls them brothers and sisters. And so keep praying, keep proclaiming the gospel, because no one is ever too far gone for God to save. And it's the gospel that calls sinners back to him. So keep proclaiming, keep preaching, keep praying. Don't lose heart for your loved ones who are far. Because God can save sinners who seem too far gone because his arm is not too short to save. You know why? Because God doesn't save sinners due to their performance. You don't need to convince them to start acting a certain way to get God's blessing. It's not how God's blessing comes. He doesn't save sinners due to their performance, but because of his promise. And this promise is permanent. That's why verse 15 says, if a human covenant can't be modified after it's ratified, how much more covenants that God makes? Now, most of you in this know this personally. You're either leasing or you're, you're renting, or if you're too young to do either of those, you're in a house that's probably either leased or rent or was at one point. When Becky and I moved from Louisville here in 2006 in the, area, in the era of subprime mortgages and wacko arms and all sorts of things we didn't understand, and we somehow got approved for like a $750,000 mortgage, even though I wasn't making anywhere near being able to pay that, we were like, no, we just want a fixed rate. I want to know what I'm paying you in 22 years. I just want to know. I don't want it to ever change. I don't want to play the game of the, you know, hey, maybe it's going to be lower in three years. We didn't want any of that. We just wanted to know. And so we signed a fixed rate. And our mortgage has been bought and sold several times, maybe like many of yours. But you know what happened in all those times? The new people never said, okay, we got some new terms for you. They couldn't change it. And neither could I. Becky and I couldn't be like, hey, we want to go to Europe tomorrow. So we're just not going to pay our mortgage this month. We're just going to tell the bank, too bad. We'll start again when we feel like it. And nor can the bank come today and be waiting for us at the house when we get home from here and go, listen, this... The economy is really rough right now. This, this isn't working for us anymore. So you got to start paying double. And you got to do it today, or we're going to kick you out right now. Like, they can't do that without those penalties kicking in that we've already signed, right? If I don't pay, there's penalties. If they try, there's penalties. There's, it can't happen. Now, whether or not you have a mortgage, you know this is how the world works. This is how playgrounds work, right? You've done this on the playground. You pinky promise people, right? Right? You say something, they're like, whatever, and you're like, I pinky promise. Like, you, you can't break a pinky promise, or else your pinkies get broken. That's why they're pinky promises, right? You're, like, there's no changes, there's no backsies, there's no take backs. We know this when we're five on the playground. That's what Paul's getting at. It's already been ratified. You can't undo these things. And if that's how the playground works, if that's how mortgages work, if that's how human covenants work, how much more with God? And so the gospel of works is false. The gospel that false teachers are peddling is wrong. And not only that, cursed be anyone who preaches it. 
Because salvation, if it's always been by faith alone in God's promise and not my performance, that can't change now. The promise has been ratified. Now, this is where we get to the point where, well, what do we do? This is where the easy application points don't come into play. This points us to who God is. That's what Paul is doing. He's not pointing us to mortgages and playgrounds. He's pointing us to God, that God is unchanging. Now, there is application. You know why? Because just like the bank won't be waiting on your porch when you get there, trying to change the terms on something that can't be done, you don't have to worry about waking up tomorrow morning going, oh, the rules of the game have changed. Now it is based on my performance, my salvation. I do have to do. I didn't at once, but now I do. God's changed his mind. No, the performance will never be the basis of your standing with God because he made the promise and he keeps every promise. So how do you apply that? Well, it's less a to-do and more something that impacts everything you do, which is what we talked about at the end of last week's sermon. Are you living for or from? It changes everything. It's not about, okay, I gotta go do this, 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 and this. It's exactly the opposite of what Paul is saying. It's be enraptured with this vision of an unchanging God that no matter what, he will not fail to keep his promise. His promise is permanent. So that's first. After proving the permanence of his promise, then we see, secondly, the person of promise. The person of promise. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now this is really tough, tough sledding here. This is one of the hardest verses in Galatians. I'm just going to tell you up front. If you didn't have your cups of coffee this morning, uh, stand up. Do a couple jumping jacks. It's okay. No one's going to judge. But you've got to buckle up if you want to understand what's going on here. Uh, and I'm going to try and do it the best I can. Uh, think about it this way. It's cold uh, in Michigan. We long for those beach days to come back. Have you ever been to Lake Michigan? Right? We're all on the top of the beach. We're all loving the warmth. We're enjoying the sunshine, the nice breeze, the ice cream, you know, the treats, all the stuff, the beach food, hanging out, right? Then you got that one wacko dude going like this, you know, like with his metal detector. And you're like, what's this guy doing? Right? And he gets his shovel out and he gets his nickel, right? It's only a nickel, but it's a nickel more than you have, right? That's what's going on with the Bible so often. You can stay on the top and enjoy it. And you will have enjoyment. Like the Holy Spirit gives us things. But there are times when we go deep and we get more than we would if we just stayed on. Right? So if you want it, if, if you want to go deep, he, we, this is Paul giving you your metal detector and a shovel. Right? So here we go. What is he doing here? He gives this example of a human coming that can't change. And then starts talking about offsprings and offspring and who knows what's going on. Well, Paul does, so let's try and figure out what he's doing. If you promise your friend after the service today that you will take them to lunch, and I hear it, I shouldn't be like, oh, great, they're taking me to lunch too. Like, if I show up at that lunch with you and your friend and then sit down or, like, try to tag along and get my, my food in before you pay, you'd be like, what is this guy doing? And you're like, well, it's JJ the pastor, so I'll probably just have to do it, you know? Like, I don't want to be awkward right now, but you're, like, you're both going, what in the world's going on here? Like, if you promise your friend lunch, there's no reason for me to believe it has anything to do with me. So this is what Paul, I think, is doing. He's arguing God's promise wasn't just to Abraham, 
but also to Jesus Christ. And why is that important? Because if it was just to ethnic Jews, then Gentiles would have no place in this promise. So he's saying it wasn't just to Abraham, nor just to his offspring, but to Jesus Christ. And that's how this promised blessing comes to sinners. Paul shows this with another word that uh, the meaning depends on context. Offspring. Offspring. It doesn't just mean, excuse me, God doesn't just make a promise to Abraham, but to his offspring. And we saw that in Genesis. But that word can be plural or singular. And again, the context determines the meaning. In Genesis 12, God promised Abram to make him into a great nation. That's plural. Yet in Genesis 17, he's still childless, singular, right? But God reaffirmed his promise to Abram, and the offspring in these verses that he promised are clearly plural. He's switching back and forth. There's multiple descendants in view. But then in chapter 17, a shift occurs, and one son, one offspring, comes into focus. This singular promised son, which will confirm God's covenant promises to Abram, is a son, one son, Isaac. So we see this pattern of going from plural to singular for, for God fulfilling his promise in Genesis. And that pattern then is repeated in Genesis 22. All right, stay with me with your metal detector and your shovel. God tests Abraham by commanding him to sacrifice the one promised son, Isaac. And just before he does, he's got the knife in the hand, God stops him and reaffirms his promise to multiply his offspring like sand on the seashore. That is clearly multiple. Have you ever been on a beach with one grain of sand? You probably have. It's just not a beach. <laughs> if there's one, you can go out in the parking lot right now. It's a parking lot, not a beach. So clearly he's talking about multiple. So many you can't count. Multiple. Plural. But the very next verse, and God promises this multiple descendants, Genesis twenty-two seventeen. the emphasis shifts to the singular. Your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. So he shifts from plural to singular. In other words, what's going on here and what Paul is trying to get us to see is that the many offspring will enjoy the promises of blessing that come not because of performance, but because of promise through a singular offspring defeating their enemies. And this has been God's way of doing things all the way back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned after being tempted by the serpent. And when God is doling out promises and curses, God says this in verse 15, this promise, I will put enmity between you, he's talking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, one of the things that I uh, got excited about in seminary was biblical theology. You start seeing these themes that you'd never seen before all throughout. And you could just tie these threads. And one of those themes throughout the entire Bible is this conflict that starts in the Garden of Eden and is still going on now. This conflict between the promised offspring of the woman and the serpent. Yeah. It's a central theme. And the promised offspring, who is going to be this son? That's the cry. 
and you wonder, it's not just that a son was killed right after this in, in Genesis 4, but it's like, who's going to be the son? You see, the, if, if sons are dying, who's going to fulfill the promise? If one son dies and the other one's marked by, who's going to be the one to come and rescue? Who's coming? Who is this? How is God going to keep his promise? And so you see this longing. Well, then God calls out from among the nations, Abraham, and it comes more and more into focus. I'm going to keep fulfilling this promise through you that I made to Adam and Eve. And it's going to come into then Isaac. And then you have Isaac going to Jacob. And then his multiple sons are enslaved in Egypt. And Egypt tries to kill them. You see this conflict between offsprings? The offspring of the serpent is trying to wipe out the offspring of promise. To thwart God's purposes. Who is going to be the son that will crush the serpent's head? Well, then you see in 2 Samuel this promise of a son to David who will sit on the throne forever. But David's sons keep dying. Who's going to sit on the throne? Who is this son? So what Paul is really doing is tying this biblical theme of offspring, and he goes, it's Jesus. He's the promised son. All of the fulfillment of God's promises are in Jesus. And so God's promises in Genesis weren't just to Abraham. It's a continuation of this who is the son? Who is the promised one that will come? Who's the one through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed? Now, I've tried to say all that as plainly as I can, right? But if you're still looking for your metal detector and you're like, I couldn't find a shovel fast enough and you're already way down there, it's still, still time for you to join us. Let me say it this way. Oh, who cares? <laughs> all right, it's not offsprings, it's offspring. Right? But my crockpot's going, my Instapot's burning. What does this really matter? Right? Why should I care? Because God's covenant with Abraham is still in effect today. There's still this promise that the nations will be blessed through a singular son. And no modifications have taken place because they weren't made just to Abraham, but to this promised son as well. And so... Just as God counted Abraham righteous by faith alone, God still counts sinners saved, righteous, justified by faith alone because of Jesus. Jesus is the key. We saw two Sundays ago, God always intended for those blessings of this promise not to be just given to male heirs, nor just Jewish people, but to anyone, male or female, from any nation, tribe, and tongue. Because Galatians 7 says, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Why should you care? You want this promise. That's why you should care. You need this blessing. This blessing is life. Everything else is death. How does that blessing come to you? You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. Especially if you're not Jewish, you should have nothing to do with this promise. But God made a way, and it was the way from the beginning that people like us could still have a part of this blessing. And it's by faith we can be true sons of Abraham, sons of promise. And how do we receive it? It's by faith in Jesus, the singular offspring through whom all the multiple offspring will be blessed. That's why you should care. And it's in Jesus alone. We used to have this um, sign out on one of those buildings, maybe on multiple buildings. Uh, one's gone now. 
And then I think when that went down, it was on the other one. But it faced Walton Boulevard, and it said, Hope in Christ Alone. And there's a reason why it said, Alone. Just hope in Jesus. That's true. Jesus is the reason for the season. True. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is key. Jesus is king. True. All those. Why alone? Because it's only in Jesus that God fulfills his promises. You can't have Jesus plus anything else. Those are mutually exclusive. If you have Jesus plus, you don't have Jesus. It's Jesus alone. And the glory of that is when you have faith in Jesus alone, you don't need anything else. You don't have to add anything else. You're free. There is no more, uh, what are those things called? With the mouse, with the mice running up and down? You know what I'm talking about. Hamster wheel, right? You're just always on, you're, you're moving hard, but you're not getting anywhere. You got people tapping on the glass just looking at you. Like, oh, look at him. They're just working so hard, but you're not, you, just, you don't have to do it anymore. You don't need anything else. You're free. And that's the different kind of application, isn't it? I mean, you need faith in Jesus, but even that's a gift. So it's less, again, about doing something and more about meditating on what Jesus has done. That's the key. It's, it's getting to Jesus. It's finding Jesus. It's meditating Jesus. It's trusting Jesus. It's looking at Jesus. Michael Horton, he wrote a fantastic little book called Christless Christianity. Um, actually, it's not little, but um, he wrote, it's a book, uh, Christless Christianity. And he was talking about uh, it in an interview, and he said this, it makes a big difference if we go to the Bible looking for tips or for our best life now or for advice on child-rearing, marriage, success in life, or if we go to find Jesus Christ. And just, I'm going to finish the quote in just a second, but that's the evangelical false gospel. Like, you, you started with Jesus. Okay, we need faith in Jesus, but now, go to your, like, go looking. What, what does this text mean to me? What's this got, what's this got for me? How do I live today? And if I live like this today, God will bless me. If I do this today, if I'm, I'm living in God's favor, I'm, th that's, those are all, it's not that there is no application in the Bible. James is very clear about that. You can't just say, hey, I'm a hearer of the word and then not do anything. But again, we're talking about order. What's the order? It's I find Jesus and all that he's done. I get into Jesus. That's the argument Michael Horton makes in Christ's Christianity. How, union with Jesus. How do I get into Jesus? How is God saving sinners? And then how does that release me to live a life glorifying to him? But so often we like, okay, Lord, I need my nugget today. Keep me in your, keep me in your blessing. Keep me in your favor. Keep me. It's, it's the order. But then he goes, if we go to find Christ, who is the wisdom of God, then all the wisdom on other matters, marriage, parenting, work, find its proper coordinates in him. You go from Jesus, not for Jesus. That's the point. You find Jesus, and then everything, all our doing, finds its proper coordinates in him. But we stop, we stop climbing the ladder, getting off the hamster wheel, and we behold Jesus. That's the to-do. Pray for eyes to see Jesus. 
And as you do, the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians, Paul promises, will deepen and grow your faith in Jesus as you behold him, the object of your faith. And the more you hope in Jesus alone and not things that will ultimately fail you, the more you'll live supremely for Jesus' glory. And that's what Paul's talking about at the end of Galatians 2. That's living in every area of life by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Then we go. We live by faith. So we have the permanence of the promise and living by faith in the person of the promise. And then thirdly, then, we have the precedence of the promise. The precedence of the promise. Look at verse 17. He says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Even Paul sometimes realizes he's left us behind. And so uh, he says, okay, everyone, listen up. If you're still up top on the beach, you, st- you couldn't fit a shovel, you tried, you, start, you hit a rock and you gave up, whatever it might be, now's your time to get back with me. He says, this is what I mean. Right? Remember when Peter says, even Paul is really hard to understand. Paul knows it too. And he says, okay, let me summarize. All eyes up here. God made this promise to Abraham 430 years before he gave a single law to Moses and his people. So, if the law comes 430 years after the promise, it cannot cancel or modify the promise. It's not how promises work. It has precedence. It came first. Now, some of the difficulty in these verses come because we don't know exactly what the Judaizers were teaching. We don't have evidence of exactly what the false gospel was. We only have Paul's side of the debate, so we only have one half of it. But it seems from verse 17 that the false teachers were probably saying that the Mosaic Covenant, the law that came born 30 years after with circumcision and food laws, supplemented or even defined the Abrahamic Covenant. So think about it this way. You know, if you have a coloring book, you get the coloring book, it's just black and white with the outline. Nothing's colored in. Probably the Judaizers were saying the Abrahamic Covenant is the coloring book, and the Mosaic Covenant is the Crayola box. This teaches, you how to, this teaches you how to color it in. It defines it. And they probably were accusing Paul, which we saw in chapter 1, of either uh, innovating a brand new gospel, or they were easing Mosaic law restrictions to make it more palatable to Gentiles. Because who would want to give up bacon, right? right? So that's what Paul is saying. He's like, or that's what they're accusing Paul of of doing. And Paul's like, no, absolutely not. They're proclaiming the new false gospel. Abraham received the blessing of promise by faith. You, you Galatians, received the blessings by faith alone when Paul preached the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus Christ. Because you received the Holy Spirit, not by doing anything, but by hearing with faith alone in Jesus alone. Because, he argues, when God gave the Mosaic law 430 years after his promise to Abraham, it doesn't nullify or negate the promise God made. It doesn't. The Mosaic law is interim. It's subordinate to the promise. So, Paul 
And the next section in verse 19 starts off with, well, why then the law? Because he knows what, com- what question is coming. If, if, what's the purpose of the law then? But you're just going to have to come back in two Sundays to feast upon God's answer to that question. Because the point of verse 17 is this. The Mosaic law is subordinate. The Abrahamic promise takes precedence. The law does not change or negate the promise that salvation, justification, and all the blessings that go along with it are by faith alone. All right, so how do we apply that? Well, we all want, we, we all are desiring the good life. We want it. We long for the world to be made right. We want, we want things to be different in this ruined earth. We, we want the life we were created by God for, the life that we live with him face to face. We long for it, to have his presence and power with us. And, and what is going on here is the false teachers are saying, you get that life that you want by performance. But it cannot be earned. That's the, that's the entire witness of the Bible. It cannot be earned. It doesn't come by performance. And Paul actually turns that truth that should actually be hopeless. Well, if I can't do it, then how is it going to come? He turns that hopeless moment into one of great hope. That the law was never meant to have anything to do with you receiving justification. It was always by faith so that God would get all the glory. That's why he says in verse 18, if the inheritance come by law, it's no longer by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise while he was still an idolater. It's amazing. And and Paul here turns again to family language to make this point. He uses the word inheritance. That's sonship language. Sonship language. If you're a true son of Abraham, no matter your gender or ethnicity, if your faith is in Jesus alone, you are a person that has this inheritance coming. It's promised. The word inheritance has already been used to point to the blessing of justification and the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, but inheritance also points throughout the Old Testament to something else. The land. The place that we would live with God where God would live with us, this, this land, this promised land. But we also see something throughout the Old Testament, especially in Psalm 2, that the promised land and the promise of it expands to the ends of the earth, that the promised son would inherit the nations, not just this little, the all of it. And so the word inheritance The inheritance that is promised to the true son of Abraham is none other than the reverse of the curse, even better than Eden, the new heaven and the new earth and its consummation when things will be all new. That's why we sang all things new today. We long for God to fulfill his promise, to come and make all things new, to come and never leave again. We have his spirit now, but it's pointing to something greater. It's this already and not yet, where we will be with God and he will be with us. We won't need sun or moon because he will be our life. 
There will be no more death, no more tears, no more anything wrong. Sin and death destroyed. We are longing for that. And how is that going to come? When we finally get our acts together? When you finally start reading your Bible right and doing it? When you finally... Remember, I mean, I love Awana. I'm not bashing Awana. This sounds like I'm about to bash Awana, but I'm just not going to, right? It's, it's part of who I am. But remember, in things like that, or if you don't know what Awana is, it's okay. But you, you, you did these little things, and you did this book, and you filled it out, and you earned memory verses, and you got patches or jewels in your crown for, like, how many verses you did and how good a performance you did. And again, nothing wrong with that in principle. I'm just saying we can take those things and then turn it into how the rest of my life with God works. Like, I gotta fill my crown out with all the jewels, then I'll get into the kingdom. And, and we're tempted to live like this because everything in our world is set up like this. It's how school's set up. You can't not do anything and get an A. You, you not get anything, you get detention. Like, and grounding. That's what happened, well, at least to me, right? You, you go to work tomorrow and don't do anything, they might let it slide for a bit, depending on how much capital you've, you've earned. But if it, goes, if it goes pretty long, and you're not performing, what happens? If I'm not faithful to my wife, what happens? If I'm not faithful to this, what happens? Everything is based on these things. And sometimes for good reason. The problem is, is then when we take this and turn it into how we relate with God. And that God is the same way, that it's based on how I do and if that's what it is, then the inheritance is not by promise. And if it comes by law, it's not going to be an inheritance. What would it be? It would be wages. The problem, though, is you can't do it by law. You won't earn inheritance. You earn a curse. You only prove you're worthy of the curse if you try to gain it by law. But here we go. Praise God, brothers and sisters. The inheritance isn't based on your performance. It's a gift because you're a true son. You're a true son of Abraham if your faith is in the promised son who did it for you. So friends, this world is heading towards this day when God makes all things new. History's hurtling towards this day when Christ returns and he rescues those whose faith is in him alone and brings judgment on everything else and renews this world and sets it right for life forever with God. This has been the plan since the beginning. God was not surprised in Genesis. It's been the plan since the beginning, and that plan hasn't changed. This inheritance comes because of what God has done, not on our performance. So what are you hoping in? If your hope is not in Christ alone, may you have eyes today to see Jesus and turn to him in faith. And brothers and sisters, may you have eyes too to see our triune God. This is what we need, a vision of God that so fills our vision, it changes how we live. It changes everything. And the foundation of verses 15 to 18 is the unchanging nature of God. It points us to our always faithful God. And while that may not give you very easy application points while you walk out of here today, it does make for life-changing ones. In a world where nothing remains the same, where friends are fickle, and people are gone when they said they would never be, when economies are unpredictable and markets are volatile, making vocations unreliable, 
and governments are unstable all around the world. We have an unchanging reality that our God is always faithful. His steadfast love never ends. His mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is great each day. And you know what David does with this reality? You know how, this is what I've been trying to say, and hopefully I'm saying it right. This is, David takes these things, these truths that aren't easy to apply, and he turns them into a song in Psalm 46. And you know what he says? Because this is who our God is, even if the heart of the earth, the very ground I'm standing in, gets launched into the heart of the sea, even then, God cannot fail me. Now to everyone else, and even as you're flying through the air, you'd be like, this is, I can't, how is this going to end? Well, I mean, think about it. That's the imagery David gives us in Psalm 46. If the mountain gets moved into the heart of the sea, and I'm on it, I'm in trouble. But he says, no. You know why? Your inheritance cannot be taken away from you no matter what happens. Because God never fails to keep his promise. His unfailing faithfulness, brothers and sisters, has nothing to do with your performance. Even when we're unfaithful, Paul says in another letter, God remains faithful. So whatever you face this week, fix your eyes on Jesus, for it's in him that we will find not only the wisdom we need, but receive all we need to walk with him in anything we have before us this week for his glory. Let's pray. May you give us eyes to see who you are. We need a vision of you, God. One that so enlivens and deepens our faith, gives us such confidence in you that we could stare disaster in the face and say, even if you will not fail. And we have that confidence because of your promise. And your faithfulness is not dependent upon our performance. So help us to continue to get that order right so that you might receive all the glory when we do walk with you through whatever you have providentially in store for us this week. That everything we do and say, whether we eat or we drink, would be to your glory alone, we pray. Amen.